Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scraps, our podcast where we explore the stories of people who are behind the science and innovation that means so much to you. I'm your host, Jojo Platt, and I'm joined here by my co-host and partner in crime, Arun Sridhar. It is a curious thing, the death of a loved one. We all know that our time in this world is limited and that eventually all of us will end up underneath some sheet, never to wake up. And yet, it is always a surprise when it happens to someone we know. It is like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking that there is one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try and readjust the way you thought of things. Those were Lemony Snicket's words in the book Horseradish, Bitter Truths That You Can't Avoid. I'm sure some of us at some point in our lives have or will have to deal with the grief of losing the loved one. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the cycle of life. As we get more familiar with our carbon footprints during our lifetime, it poses an interesting question. What happens when we die? What happens to how we want our body to be treated? Some of us might consider or might have considered donating an organ to transplant. Others might say that they would want to donate their body to research to enable the education of people who come after themselves. Others might want a fancy casket and a burial. A few others might want a cremation and the cremains to be scattered in a water body or on a piece of land that they've routinely visited or all over the world across continents. How we thought of what our loved ones might want to do. If you think why we are asking these questions, it is because of the fact that humankind's fascination with death and the dead is not new. Neolithic farmers 7,000 years ago living in Italy practiced a ritual defleshing of the dead. We know this because there were light cut marks that suggest that the bones were defleshed up to a year after death. If you thought that was 7,000 years ago, as recent as the Middle Ages, excarnation was practiced by European cultures. Excarnation refers to the process of removing the flesh from the bones. It is believed that this practice was very prevalent if the disease was of a high status or had died some distance from home so that the remains could be brought home in the form of bones to preserved to be preserved. Christopher Columbus and the American Revolutionary War General Anthony Wayne were two examples in history who underwent some form of excarnation. In Germany, the practice was known as Mos Teutonicus. The bodies were broken down differently than just solely defleshing. They were cut up and boiled in either wine, water or vinegar. If this seems gruesome, I think we ought to look at the practice more closely. The way that these practices worked was really to return what was matter in the form of human body back to nature. You could call yourself a scientist and have no belief in spiritual practices or a rational atheist. Or you could be a rational spiritualist where you believe in spirituality and you think that you're rational. Or you have no belief in science or evolution but trust in religion. Despite all this, there is evidence in history across religions, nationalities and continents where returning the corpse back to nature was considered and is still being done. I'll give you three examples. Tibetan sky burials, Comanche platform burials, and the traditional Zoroastrian funerals are examples of this practice. Across the three practices, it is believed that people left the body exposed on an open litter or an altar. In the Zoroastrian religion, Parsis leave their corpses exposed to sun's rays atop a mountain or a hillock where birds of praise 
like eagles, vultures and crows can feast on the dead corpse. Burial or cremation was considered to be as a practice that polluted the nature. In the Zoroastrian faith, this practice takes place in a tower of silence called as Dakma, and the process is called as excarnation. Even today, Tibetan sky burials are still practiced by Mongolians, some Chinese provinces that follow Buddhism, the, in the Indian state of Sikkim, and of course, Tibet. With the growth in urbanization and organization of people around a town or a city, space became a premium and cremation or burial became the norm. We all know of a family member who underwent either a burial or cremation as part of their last rites. We also have read about how the grass is grown at the site of burial and the length of the grass at the burial site as an index of how time has passed since the act of burial took place. Now, there is a growing realization about carbon footprint of burial and cremation. Recently, the conscious citizens and scientists had started the process of green burial. It is now so prevalent that every state in the United States almost has at least one green burial site, where the corpse is actually buried in the ground without a casket. But more recently, there has been even more change in attitude. What if your loved ones can take your remains, turn it into compost and have enough compost to feed a bed of plants or even a tr plant even a tree and have you right next to them in the garden? This is the topic that we are going to explore today. Our guest today is Lynn Carpenter Boggs. She's a professor in Washington State University's Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. Dr. Carpenter Boggs has concentrated on improving agricultural sustainability today while still improving the resiliency of natural resources for the future. She has a BS in Biophysical Environmental Studies, a Master's in Soil Microbiology and Biochemistry, she earned her PhD in soil science, and I'm telling you, she's here to bury you. <laughs> Whether you call it taphonomy, green transitioning, or human composting, Lynn has been working on helping humans to reduce their carbon footprint now and after they die. It sounds a little alarming at first, but I promise once you let the third grade jokes evaporate, there's something truly amazing happening here. So thank you for coming on. We appreciate having you here. And um, maybe you could start by giving us a, a broad overview of what exactly is human composting and why might one choose to do it? Mm -hmm. Yes, thanks. Legally, this process is called natural organic reduction. It is using essentially the, the process of composting for the final disposition of human bodies. Um, it is, uh, legally, you know, separated from composting, um, because we, we do, and we will always treat the human body as something very different from what we consider waste. So, um, facilities that do NOR, um, are going to be, licensed funeral facilities and um, subject to the same kind of um, regulations and, and oversight as, as other funeral facilities. So um, NOR is, uh, is, is also a, a bit different because the kind of process and materials that are used um, are, well, they, they, they may they may vary from facility to facility. Um, I'm only uh, currently advising uh, one um, startup uh, startup company and facility, but um, the kinds of process and materials used are likely to be 
different than what people normally think of as composting. And, and there is a lot of, mm, conf I don't know if confusion or uh, uh, misnaming of composting in the general public anyway. Um, people often think of compost as being sort of a, a, a pile of, of um, unsightly stuff in the backyard. And <laughs> legally, that is not compost either. <laughs> so composting uh, in, in any case, uh, you know, if it's um, done in a, in a legal fashion um, and, and permitted, it's a managed process. And it's, it's a, a highly, um, highly biologically active process. And what's special about composting is that that tremendous microbial activity creates heat, that there needs to be uh, a management of the, the, the process and the kinds of materials that are going in that allow that, that uh, biological activity to become thermophilic or heat loving. There are all sorts of advantages to that. Um, in addition to just dramatically speeding up the process, um, it that that heat actually helps to degrade many uh, many materials and um, pathogens that might otherwise um, survive in um, mesophilic or sort of room temperature um, decomposition. So it's it's hot and fast and um, tends to be more effective at breaking down um, again many. Uh, many pathogens and um, unwanted materials. That's fantastic, Lynn. Thank you. Um, I think we just want to simplify that a little bit more. Um, the, and, it, and it's important for people to understand the, the differences between how the normal garden composting occurs uh, and to how differentiated the process of human composting really is. So can we just start off a bit by, by talking about just regular garden composting and then move from there on moving to highlight how important it is to actually have human composting? Many people, especially gardeners, will have uh, we'll, we'll use composting even for materials from their own garden and, and yard. And, um, and increasingly, even um, landfill sites and counties will offer composting of larger volumes of yard waste. And it, it's a way of recycling the nutrients and the carbon that are in all of those plant materials. Um, in addition, compost is a wonderful amendment for soil. It improves the, the long-term carbon sequestration. It improves water holding capacity and generally in, increases plant production. So um, using that idea of composting for a funeral process, it means that we're then able to recycle our own nutrients and carbon and uh, not only reduce our, our environmental footprint in that way, but to produce a material that's actually good to return to the soil. So I'm, I'm guessing that if one were to participate in this process posthumously, of course, um, that um, I'm sure you get some just crazy questions about all of this, but I, I you know, I, I, when I die, I'm going to be put in an urn and then my kids are going to scatter my ashes all around the world just as a means of, an excuse to take a trip. So what happens? What comes home? What is granny in a box? Um, I'm not going to put her on my vegetable garden. Um, what happens? What's the end product? And, and what happens to that end product? Right. So the end product looks exactly like a nice compost. Uh, and that material, what's that? Is it smelly? It smells like compost. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't smell of offensive in, in the least, it, you know, for someone who's, who's a gardener. Um, uh, yeah, so what happens to the material is, is going to 
<clears throat> sorry, is going to depend on the different facilities. Uh, likely, you know, different funeral homes will have different options. Um, in most cases, there will be options either to take take home some or all of that material or for that material to go to um, specific uh, specific areas like conservation uh, conservation lands for um, land application. So some, some or all of the materials certainly can come home. It is uh, going to be uh, microbiologically safe for, for land application. Um, we think that many families will choose to bring some of the material home, uh, for instance, to put out in a rose garden or to plant a tree in so that their loved one always has a, a presence. Yeah, and, and and I do know, especially here in the UK, there are quite a few number of my my f people that I live around here who actually kind of bury their pets in the garden so that and they plant a nice flower bush on top of that because it's a nice way to actually remember um, that. So let's actually break the process here and maybe just go. I mean, this is this is what you do now, but. I don't think this is what you started off doing. So how did your interest in in the field of soil sciences come to be, Lynn? In the field of soil sciences. So I grew up on small farms in eastern Oregon and southern Idaho. And uh, it, it uh, was wonderful. Uh, I I learned a lot about how to relate to the, the soil and natural resources and, and animals. Um, and I really never thought that I would be working in agriculture, though. Uh, professionally, I was more... What do you want to be? Well, in, <laughs> uh, I, I uh, remember wanting to work for NASA course okay uh and then as i started to learn more about environmental issues i was uh, going to be an environmental scientist which to some degree i i am uh just working in the agricultural context um i i remember um even in grade school i first learned about uh some books being banned and i thought that would be a great thing to someday write a book that would be banned. Um, so in a way, I think that I put those things together, um, except maybe the NASA piece uh, so far. Um, so what happened, though, was as I went through my you know teens and, and 20s, just started to uh, observe how important agriculture is to the social structure of, of the U.S. and the world and um, how, how someone's um, physical background affects how you think about other people and about animals and natural resources and learning about the pollution from agriculture that affects all of those natural resources, the degradation of soils around the world. Um, the economic importance of agriculture. So, yeah, all of those, uh, all of those things were calling me back into agriculture. And then, as I started to learn about soil, um, this is this is a this is where it all starts. Uh, you you can't have the you can't have land plants. You can't have uh, land-based agriculture without having healthy soil. So understanding that and, and managing it was, I, I still see as, as key to having a healthy long-term system. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about what happens to uh, um, when, when there is a burial or a cremation. I think based on what you were just saying, everything comes down to what the carbon footprint is of the process of the person and all of that. So it'll be fantastic to actually hear you list out in very quantifiable terms uh, what happens when somebody has an, a, a regular funeral uh, and then we'll we'll come to human composting in just a second. But let's just talk about the human foot, uh, carbon footprint of of 
a burial or a cremation? And what are the processes that actually go? And does it make it easy for this for the process and, and how much it puts out in terms of carbon dioxide into this into the atmosphere? The footprints of a cemetery based funeral where the body is embalmed and placed in the casket, um, buried buried several feet underground. Uh, there are many impacts to this. Um, there's the embalming itself, which requires, well, which, which uses fairly toxic chemicals, although because of concern from embalmers, there actually are, are better, safer alternatives coming online for that. Um, but those chemicals um, can and do leach out of the body. Um, and can contaminate the soil in in and underneath um, cemeteries. There's the casket itself, um, and the the carbon footprint of the casket depends a lot on how much metal is used versus wood, and really the how much cotton is in um, in the, the lining. Uh, sur- surprisingly, cotton ha- can have a pretty big carbon footprint. Um, then there's the, the process of the, of, um, uh, just placing that in the ground. There's a land cost of cemeteries, and this actually varies from country to country. And Arun, you know, in, in the UK, it, and many places in Europe, it's not uncommon that cemetery plots can be reused, uh, after a few decades in the U.S., we don't do that, um, uh, or at least it's, it's very unusual. But it's increasingly common because uh, there is a limited amount of land, especially increasingly the human population lives in, in urban centers. So uh, you know, where, where people live, there's a, a shortage of land. So when you look at the look at a life cycle assessment of funeral practices, the the land can actually be a, a big concern, land use, but it then depends on where the cemetery is in terms of how important that is, because some areas have land to spare, whereas uh, counties like King County, where Seattle is, they don't allow new, new cemeteries. You know, the, the space is very limited. There are some other things that are not often thought about, uh, which turn out to be big impacts, like just uh, the gathering of people, all of the transportation of not not just the 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 deceased themselves, but all of the family coming to one location is actually a big part of the carbon footprint. And, you know, I'm not here to say that we're going to or want to change that, but just in terms of seeing the the big picture around a funeral process, um, we should uh, consider that. So um, cremation has extremely small land footprint. Um, the the deceased may or may not go through embalming. Um, uh, they may or may not uh, use a casket. Usually, there there there's uh, just a, a small cardboard casket used for cremation. So, um, in cremation, though, there is fuel use. So, just to create the the heat required to go through the the cremation process. And uh, so in terms of uh, energy and overall footprints, cremation generally has a much lower footprint than than traditional land burial. Now, now we're also starting to, um, so back, back to cremation. Cremation can have other impacts like release of toxins, um, without the right scrubbers in the, especially there can be metals that volatilize through the cremation process. Um, we're also starting to see green burials. And in the U.S., there's now at least one green burial facility in every state. Um, so generally those facilities uh, do not require embalming. There's very little to no casket. 
And it may even be a way to conserve natural areas. So, you know, now we, we start to see a lot of those sources of impact really decline. And, you know, we see natural organic reduction as not intending to re replace um, any of these options, just providing a, a new option that also has a very low footprint. And what's special about NOR is the creation of this, this compost that is known to be so beneficial to soils and plants. What's the difference between, because I think one of the higher profile cases that came out in the last few years was Luke Perry um, and his mushroom suit. Is this the same thing? Is that a different process? Do you know anything about that one? Yeah, the mushroom suits. So fungi are part of the saprophytic microbial community that would break down a body. Um, but generally, most of that process is, is bacterial. Um, there's actually been no research that, that I've seen anywhere uh, showing that those mushroom suits actually do increase the rate or beneficial effect of the body decomposing. So, um, you know, it is uh, presumably providing a greater inoculum around the body, but um, soils are teeming with life um, that are fairly well suited to breaking down a body as long as it's not embalmed and it's not encased in material. Um, what can be problematic though is, is depth in the soil. So the, the deeper you go in soil, uh, the less the microbial activity is going to be and the more likelihood that nutrients coming out of the decomposing material will just be lost to leaching. So in terms of providing real um, an, an area that is going to be, you know, highly microbial active, that's going to be in the topsoil, which we don't bury people there <laughs> for, for some reasons. <laughs> um, so, you know, as we move the body deeper in the soil, um, it may be more beneficial to provide an inoculum like, like that. Um, so I know that in green burial areas, they tend to bury the body somewhat shallower than the, you know, what we think of as the, the six feet deep uh, in, in cemeteries. So they're usually a, a couple of feet deep, um, well above a lo any local water table, but uh, hopefully still within the range of soil where there's a lot of microbial activity and plant roots that can actively utilize those, those nutrients. With the compost, um, that primary decomposition has already occurred um, and the, those nutrients can be applied at or very near the, the surface, which is again where there's already more microbial activity and the nutrients will continue to decompose. Um, the organic material will continue to decompose and those nutrients are most likely to be incorporated into uh, soil microbial biomass and into plants and new life. So how long does the process typically take for a human body? The timeline is going to vary by facility. So I came into this work um, through composting on farm materials and have done work with livestock mortalities livestock carcasses. And for instance, I work at WSU and our Pullman campus has a functioning permitted composting facility that has been composting livestock mortalities for um, about a decade. Uh, and that includes whole cows, horses, llamas, um, very large animals. That process, um, takes several months. And so the, the research and development around bringing a similar process to commercialization for human use has been a combination of, of keeping the, the biological process intact, but minimizing the time so that it's more uh, commercially viable 
and also, you know, and, and not all of these are, are my, my um, place in the, in the process, but, but also um, creating a process that is socially acceptable and can be incorporated into uh, rituals that people also need to be part of the funeral process. Yeah. So if, if we were to just make it a bit more lighter, what is the ideal recipe for human composting from your perspective? Or rather, if, if we take the example of, of the cow that, that actually comes to uh, the, the university that, that you've actually tested, what is the ideal recipe for, for composting? And where are the areas of innovation that, were, that is currently being undertaken at this point of time? That's a good question, but there is no single best answer to that. Many uh, materials and many recipes can be used very successfully. What's normally done on farms, though, is uh, farmers will use waste plant materials and also animal manure. Um, animal manure is extremely rich in microbial activity, makes a great hot compost, at least as part of the materials. What we are forming in the, the feedstock blend around any carcass is a ratio of carbon to nitrogen of around 25 to 30 to 1 that provides excellent microbial food. And then we also we also manage the particle size of materials so that there's sufficient airflow and porosity to support aerobic microbial activity and also um, high moisture holding capacity so that we can have about 50 to 55% moisture at any time to support that microbial activity without creating anaerobic conditions. So it's balancing out the carbon, nitrogen, aeration, and moisture. And a lot of different organic materials can be part of that. So, uh, but as I said, you know, on farms, we're often using things like mm, sour hay, uh, manures, um, and those are not things that we would put grandma in. Um, you know, <laughs> so that has been, that was an interesting process to work with other uh, fresh plant materials to make to make that feedstock blend that had all the the right uh, components then that would um, start decomposing very rapidly and provide uh, the the rich nutrients and inoculum uh, so that we can have a fast process too. So, and and you mentioned you started your uh, endeavor into this area primarily focused on livestock. How how did you transition? Did somebody just come up, hey, I have a great idea. How, how did you move into the human market? Right. So it's it's interesting to, to watch people um, learn about NOR because they have to go through in their minds extremely quickly a process that I think I took about 20 years to think about. So... Yeah, I came into this as first learning about compost and composting process um, and then being part of demonstrations where we were composting sheep and pigs and then eventually cows and and just going through the, the observation and mental process of seeing how effective that can be. It's really tremendous. Um, and... Then, yeah, I was, uh, I and a graduate student produced a, uh, an extension bulletin. So instructions for producers, how do you compost a large, large mortality? And a few years after that, yeah, I just got a phone call uh, from this lady who wanted to know if she was crazy or had a good idea. Um, she wasn't just some lady. Uh, she was a, a uh, had been in a graduate uh, graduate student in uh, as an architect um, and designer, thinking about the issue of human death and the fact that the majority of people live in urban centers now, and we needed more solutions um, for for many different reasons. 
So yeah, my my journey in into this was, you know, yeah, took took several uh, several steps. People who are now just hearing about natural organic reduction really have several several challenges um, and it's been um, interesting to see though how quickly a lot of people can understand oh this is a natural process um, this has been used agriculturally for some time it's effective and uh, it can it, we'll, we'll start to see when the facilities start opening that it can actually be uh, a beautiful process also. We hope that you have really enjoyed listening to our episode so far. Why not spread the love? Please spread the word about this episode and any others that you might love on your social media platform. Please tag us. Our Twitter is at Podcast Scraps. We are on LinkedIn and we are on Facebook. Tag us. Please spread the word and let's return back to the conversation. I can see how this can also take on worldwide because some of the religions, especially in in Asia, um, like for example, um, I think death is always seen as a cycle of life in in many cultures, including mine. And it's always about giving back where to uh, where one came from. So it's almost echoing Shakespeare, earth to earth ashes to ashes in, in a way. And one of the religions, uh, which is the Parsi religion, which originally came from Persia, but then they immigrated in, in the middle, um, in, in the middle ages to India, that particular religion, they actually take their dead um, to a top of a hill where they let the, the vultures kind of feast on, 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 on the dead corpses or, or, and as a result of that, that leads to the, the cycle of life. I think I can clearly see how this is extremely important because now everybody talks about kind of climate change and other things, but also it is about having, having a way in which one can process our own carbon footprint not just in life but also in death and lead that to ultimately having a better design of our urban spaces a better design uh, with a bit more personal uh, attachment to a particular structure or a design in, in an urban space so it's it's definitely something that has a lot of kind of cultural backing as well although in the western world I think we've kind of moved away from that into kind of having it more monetized in terms of the embalming procedures and uh, having the fancy caskets and, and, and all of that. Um, and, and I think, so coming back to your point about the, the, uh, the ideal conditions for, for NOR, it really comes down to having the right type of, of, of additives that you ultimately have. The additives in this case is really the type of, of elements and soil and other things that you can add to it um, and the substrate really that activates those. And then the other aspect, if we were to talk, approach this as a chemical reaction, it's really about the catalyst and the catalyst really comes in the form of microbes. And can you tell us a bit more about the type of microbes that you engineer to do this NOR in um, and how different that is actually to the traditional form of burial um, and wh- what what differences in the microbes are there? Um, traditional in terms of pre-casket days? <laughs> or, yeah, we, can talk, we can talk about pre-casket, casket and, and, and NOR if, if that's useful because that way we can maybe there are similarities. But I mean, I've come from a completely ignorant point of view here, Lynn. So ap- apologies for that. But if I mean, maybe that th- that is something there, right? Uh, because one is the carbon footprint argument. The other one is that how natural is the process is, uh, and therefore how is it how is it going to be better in in changing what we do? Yeah. So we can go pre casket, casket, and 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 your process. Okay. So for better or worse, there's no 
engineering required of the microorganisms. Uh, there's a, a, a saying in, in environmental microbiology uh, that everything is everywhere the environment selects. So the microorganisms that are active in NOR primarily come in in the feedstocks. Um, when a it, it, it's some facilities will use small amounts of uh, general microbial inocula like other finished compost or like a soil addition. These materials are already teeming with a diverse array of microorganisms. And it's very much dependent on having the right environmental conditions in those feedstocks that then select out which microorganisms become active. Uh, it's it's quite um, amazing the diversity that's already in our environment and in so many different materials. Even when, as those microorganisms become extremely active and the heat builds up, a thermophilic condition is created, there's a sh dramatic shift in the microbial community to thermophilic microorganisms heat-loving bacteria and fungi that are only active once you reach those temperatures. Now, why those are out in the environment already when, you know, in normal earth conditions, those situations are quite rare, somewhat a mystery and a blessing. Some of the marvels of the universe, right? Uh, beyond just black holes and, and other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so again, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, in terms of uh, commercial um, patentability and things, <laughs> these microorganisms are, are just out there. Uh, it's, it's much more about managing the process so that you encourage the activity of the right organisms. So are there, are there any causes of death that would make a person not a good candidate for NOR? Yeah. So, Actually, the, the final regulations are, are still in, in, in final development um, for, for Washington State, which is the, the first state to, to legalize NOR. Um, but there, there will be a few things. So prions are not well decomposed by composting. So as I mentioned, the vast majority of pathogens, so the vast majority of uh, viruses and uh, mesophilic bacteria are destroyed in composting. But prions, um, while the concentration of prions declines during composting, it's not really sufficient to reach um, you know, what, what we consider a, a good safety level. So people who die of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease would, would not be um, able to, to go through NOR. Um, there, would, there are a small number of other diseases um, caused by spore-forming bacteria um, that would not be allowed because, for instance, uh, for instance, anthrax, which is something that you know, when that breaks out, um, it's it's already a a public concern, and you know there will be tracking of of those cases. But those bacteria are extremely heat resistant, so there are only a few organisms though that are that resistant to to the NOR conditions. Um, there have been, by the way, several studies um, not on uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus itself, but many different coronaviruses, including heat-resistant um, strains, and they they do degrade at the temperatures that are required for NOR. What about situations, I'm thinking of cancer in particular, where there's um, the, the deceased has gone through some series of chemo or radiation. Does that have an effect? Have you been able to track that? That that's a good question. So the the only restriction it, it, again, each state is going to develop different regulations. So, but what is likely to be the only restriction will be in people who have had um, uh, radioactive implants recently that are still um, radiologically active. 
So those implants would need to be removed or the body stored for long enough that that um, radioactivity declines to a safe level. As far as, as pharmaceuticals, um, I will say that uh, pharmaceuticals are grossly understudied in the environment. And um, some pharmaceuticals have been studied in composting, especially since livestock mortality composting has become much more common and really promoted by by many departments of agriculture um, as a safe and effective method. Uh, but many of our pharmaceuticals have not been studied either. Um, results show though that composting or composting followed by land application give you the best opportunity for degradation of the widest variety of pharmaceuticals and, and other. So one other thing that I want to actually understand is really understanding the similarities in the process of of what happens with natural decomposition during a, a non-casket burial, right? So let's just take an example of burial the old-fashioned way and, and, and then uh, when we compare that to NOR. Can you just tell us about the uh, temperatures that are actually reached? Because you'd speak about the thermophilic bacteria and the temperatures and then some of the press that's out there. And I think there's another researcher who is looking to use the heat from the process of decomposition to ultimately power LED lights that would ultimately use for street illumination and other aspects. So, so this actually seems like a pretty significant process of, of generating heat. So it'll be useful also to to break this the, the barriers here for NOR just to understand what are the similarities in temperature generation during an old-fashioned non-casket burial to an NOR. So we actually completed our first trials with with human bodies at Western Carolina University, which has a forensic anthropology program. Uh, so we partnered with them and did trials at what they call their body farm. So a place where decomposition um, of human bodies is, is studied in the natural environment. Um, police and forensic scientists and um, rescue dogs um, are, are trained in areas like that. And so decomposition, even on the soil surface, where, again, there's quite a bit of microbial activity, does take some months. And um, it actually is quite dependent on how much insect activity is also allowed. So if you place a body into a, an extremely fine um, mesh material that, that no insects can get into um, or, or place it into clay, um, the decomposition declines dramatically. So there, there is a, a need for some physical disruption for uh, um, that to increase rate of decomposition. And the heat, um, there is some heat in that process, but it uh, never really builds up. So composting heats up not only because of the large, uh, the, 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 the tremendous microbial activity, but because there's a large volume and mass of it. So generally that material self-insulates. So there's, there's just so much material that the heat that's generated by the microbial activity doesn't dissipate out of the material. Enough of it is, is held in. So, uh, again, doing NOR is, or, or composting of any type is a combination of, of having the right feedstocks, having enough of it, and having sometimes having structures around that process to also help insulate that heat. So um, any kind of composting 
um, that is uh, permitted needs to go through what's called by the EPA a PFRP process to further reduce pathogens. And when that's done through biological heating, that means you need to reach at least 55 degrees Celsius, which is 131 Fahrenheit for a minimum of three days. And that time by temperature, well, the, the time requirements vary somewhat by what kind of process and facility you're, you're using. But that 55 Celsius is really critical to ensure that you are well into the thermophilic temperature range and you have a, that dramatic shift of microorganisms that are active. So that does not happen um, in burial, whether it's natural or um, in in the casket. Okay, so which which actually brings to brings me to another interesting question as well. So when we talk about compost uh, that we regularly apply, that we go to the garden center and and get a bag of compost for our garden. Um, I'm assuming that there is some sort of regulation that actually governs the analysis of the particulate matter that has to be at a certain level uh, that that ultimately obeys regulations in various countries, etc. Um, and again, just to break the stereotype and the barriers around NOR, I assume that you're also working towards uh, kind of conforming to the regulations of what a compost from a from that results from a human composting really is and if so can you tell us a bit more about that right so again the the regulations around composting also vary somewhat by state and sometimes sometimes even by county a lot of the the permitting is is managed on the county level um, but generally they follow EPA guidelines that were set up for biosolids materials. Um, so there are limitations on uh, basically three types of things. It's the microbial safety, the soluble or extractable metals, especially heavy metals, uh, and the inert material. So the stuff that's not breaking down. <laughs> um, and so in, in Washington state, there's a minimum testing and reporting of annually uh, of the population of fecal coliforms, which are a group of bacteria that indicate uh, they've come from, um, uh, come from feces. Um, uh, and there's... Then in, in addition, there's testing of metals such as uh, lead and cadmium that are soluble or extractable from the material. Those need to be you know, below um, safety limits for land application. And then inert material that can be like chunks of metal, um, pieces of plastic. Um, those can be problematic in some materials like municipal uh, municipal wastes. And so, yeah, for, for NOR, the intention has, has been to meet or exceed all of those same uh, safety requirements. Uh, again, the regulations um, may differ by state as those are developed. Yeah, fantastic. So just to kind of summarize, just so that I understand, the temperature, the answer to the previous question was in excess of 55 Mm -hmm. degrees and then for this one is that it you're looking to kind of stick to the same regulations or even exceed some of some of the um the, the some of the regulatory requirements that is required for compost okay that's fantastic um yeah so so can i clarify then so there there's the the temperature is a matter of meeting the the process requirements and that's an indication that you're very likely to also then have the finished product have an extremely low level of the fecal coliform bacteria and also go through um, effective decomposition of the rest of the organic matter. Yeah, but, but how much temperature does it actually reach? I mean, I'm sure when you've done kind of the, the some of the some of the livestock kind of composting, I'm sure you've actually gone and measured the actual temperature of of what is being produced by the bacterium. 
during the process of composting. So, do you know what range that is that is normally at? Yeah. So, again, if if things are managed properly, um, the the desire is to get that material between fifty five Celsius and about seventy Celsius. So there is a, a temperature that's too high where even the thermophiles die off. And we also have um, hazard at that time uh, in on-farm composting of actual spontaneous combustion. So at, at a certain temperature, you just have too much heat. And if there's any dry material, it can um, start start smoking. So um, yeah, but mostly it's in... in a matter of, again, creating the right conditions for those thermophilic microorganisms to remain active. So that would be between 55 and 70 Celsius. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I just have one more question, Jojo. Is that okay? Uh, So, I mean, especially having cremated my father and especially in, in the Hindu religion, where when we cremate people, there are aspects of we kind of take it to the sea or any kind of water body to ultimately kind of let it go. Um, um, and I think I still vividly remember that there was his kneecap. I still remember because I understand anatomy. I think there was still what was a recognizable kind of bone. And I think most people will actually, it's usually the larger bones and, and other things. So uh, that is you'll always find remnants of it when you actually go through the ashes, when, when you collect the ashes and when you transfer it and other things. Um, in the NOR, do we actually know about, I mean, when you talk about composting, you're not just lifting off everything that is available and put giving that away to the family. I'm assuming that there are aspects of the body or parts of the body that actually undergo NOR relatively easily there are parts of the body that takes a bit longer if so there is a process of optimization when you have thinking about uh, kind of commercialization of of this particular technology so can you shed a bit more light about which parts of the body kind of undergo organic reduction easily and which parts don't especially i would assume bones take a slightly longer time to undergo the same thing that happens with with cremation so Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, right. And that's a good point. You know, we, we call that material that's the result of cremation, we call it ash, but it's mostly not ash. It's it's mostly the, the ground bone. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, cremains is a more, more proper term. And yeah, bones are an issue, and many but many human bodies now also have metals in us, um, other inert materials, and that simply has been part of the research and development and conversations with um, regulators and funeral boards about what kinds of materials need to be removed beforehand, what kinds of materials need to be removed after. Um, and thinking about the material that may go back to the family and what would be okay and what would not be okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So in on-farm composting, normally that process is allowed to go for several months. Um, and But on farms, there's a less of a pressure, you know, for that, for that space. It, you know, farms generally will have the space and time to allow that process to go for several months, maybe even a year or more. And in that process, you generally find very few bones, uh, maybe some of the, um, uh, the thicker bones, um, uh, like hip, hip bones. or um, And so, yeah, the, in NOR, the question is going to be up to facilities in terms of how long they can allow that process to go um, and how much they need to use um, mechanical means to to break down, help break down that bone. Yeah. So likely most facilities are going to have a more physical stage that helps to, to break down that bone. And yeah, there will also be 
Um, there may also be uh, a sorting stage where any small um, undesirable, you know, inert materials could be taken out or, yeah, large um, pieces that you wouldn't want going into your yard could also be taken out. So you're, um, you're, you serve on the advisory board of, of one of the, the first companies that's going to be offering this commercially. And that's um, Washington State is also one of the first to offer NOR as a, uh, as a postmortem option. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Recompose and what they're up to these days? Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for asking, Jojo. So my my day job is I'm a professor of soil science and sustainable agriculture at Washington State University. And and we did the first um, pilot studies of NOR on the campus of WSU Pullman um, with a, a high level of oversight and um, uh, I, I will say support of academic freedom by the by the university. Um, I also, uh, so that, that initial pilot study was, um, funded by the Recompose company. And I do now, um, serve on the advisory board for that company. Um, so Recompose is, uh, building its first facility in, uh, Southern Seattle or just South of Seattle. And the intention is to open that facility in uh, mid to late November of this year. That's pretty good. So do you have an advanced directive? Are you, what are, I think they're calling it um, posthumous volunteers? Uh, well, we're, we're beyond the volunteer stage. We, we have not been accepting volunteers for, for quite some time. Um, so the company is now offering what's called pre-compose. So you can prepay um, and yeah, make make those plans to use uh, natural organic reduction. Um, yeah, so my husband and I did do a, a living will and those that planning uh, about uh, two years ago now, and uh, we stated that <laughs> yeah, m- my husband would would you know really prefer to be one of those set on the mountaintop for the. Uh, for the, the the coyotes, wolves, and um, uh, vultures, but uh, not not so allowed here. Uh, at any rate, yeah. So we did state that uh, either a, a natural green burial, or if it was available, natural organic reduction would be preferred. Fantastic. So if somebody wants to consider NOR in the future. What does the cost look like uh, versus the traditional burial? If somebody wants to have a green burial, that's not my area. <laughs> so, okay. um, I, I, again, there, there, there will be multiple facilities with different different price points. Um, my understanding is that, well, actually, I mean, let's let me just not guess. So the question is, think- is it going to be like, like Tesla where it's going to be so expensive that people would not want oh. to buy it for a few years oh, no. or is it going to be the same cost or, or at par such that people can actually consider that is my question. Really, okay. That's the reason. Yeah. As far, as far as ranges. Yeah. NOR is likely to be similar to or lower price than what we now consider traditional um, funerals likely to be um, m- more similar to or slightly above the cost of cremation. Okay. Well, I, I thought I had had my, um, my afterlife plan all staked out. Like I said, I'm, I wanted my kids to each get half of the cremains, not ashes, mm-hmm. and um, sort of give them a, a little bit of a stipend to, to scatter my cremains all around the world as, as really just an excuse to go travel. But I think now um, it might be a little, uh, you've given me something to consider as a, as a new option um, and, and still have Great. the travel component available. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. I, again, you know, people are going to find um, the, the, the process that feels best to them and uh, we're happy to just increase the number of those options. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. That was 
a really wonderful conversation and i think it kind of brings brings the question of what are we doing to the earth and the the life around us both in life as well as after it ends in death um definitely something uh, that there will be a lot more um conversations about this in in the near future uh once once the this is launched and other aspects of that uh but we really thank you for taking the time to actually talk to us len this is uh, very very illuminating um I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us great thanks very much yeah this is fun thank you we recorded this interview in october the startup that dr len carpenter boggs was alluding to is called as recompose It is a Washington state company that has received regulatory approval to offer its services and has launched a fantastic website and you can find the company at recompose.life. You will find the link in the show notes and according to the website the compost that the family will receive after the process of human composting is large enough to fill a bed of pickup truck. You can choose to bring the compost home and scatter them in the garden or plant a plant a tree or a sapling or the company will disperse the compost in a conservation land as informed by Dr. Lynn Carpenter Boggs we do not know if the information you heard today will change your mind or might have triggered strong emotions either way engage with us let us know what you think spread the word tag us on twitter or linkedin or facebook we value your feedback This is Arun and Jojo signing off. The clips are officially owned and is a property of Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Arun Shridhar and Jojo Blatt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Asetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps which is just Sparks spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Yeah, 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 yeah.